My name is Juanita Headley. I am a New York attorney and the founder and CEO of Changing Cases. You are listening to a set of podcasts, a series dealing with the issues of human trafficking, child abuse, and of course, so can you keep a secret? Keep a, keep a secret. Knowing how to respond to the question. Over the following weeks and months, I'm going to take a look at some hard-hitting topics with a view to educate, empower, and inspire you to change the way that you think, act, and respond to better safeguard the children in your world. Stay tuned until the end of this show, where I'll be sharing not only how you can get a copy of my new book, but I'll also inform you of some upcoming live Zoom trainings and how you can contact me to have your questions featured in a future episode of the show. We can talk about it. Yeah, we can talk about it. Yeah. So we can talk about it. Talk about it. Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah. Let's talk about the book, My Time Will Come, written by Ian Manuel. Now, this is a book that depicts his experience of being in incarceration for, I believe, 18 years in solitary confinement, but a total of 26 years. He went into prison at the age of 13 and only came out when he was 39, which was five years ago. I read this book a couple of weeks ago and finished it in one sitting and was very much inspired by what was shared because I understand that every person's experience behind prison bars is very different. But with Ian Manuel, he found faith in prison. He became a Christian. He was brought to Christ by an Adventist. And there was actually an incident in the book and, of course, in real life, where Ian refused to participate in doing chores on Saturday because he believed that was the Sabbath and to keep the day holy. And that caused a lot of tension and friction because, of course, when you're in a prison, you have to abide by the rules that are given to you and if not you'll be punished and penalized and when I read the book I observed how he would be in solitary confinement they would call it CM and he'd be moved from CM3 to CM2 to CM1 or CM2 to CM3 and there was a lot of movement in between the different levels CM3, 2 and 1 will determine the intensity or the severity of the isolation that he had so there will be instances where he is in solitary confinement for 23 hours straight. There are other times when he'd have other privileges. He was a child, and he explained that despite being in an all-male prison, he did not experience sexual abuse, assault, or rape. However, he understands that this is indeed a reality, but he says that very much he was taken under the wings of the older men, and they looked out for him. However... In his upbringing with his mother and his brother, his mom was a single mom and was the unfortunate victim of sexual abuse by his brother. He was raped by him on multiple occasions, but fortunately, his mother worked this out when Ian was being dressed by her and he had on no underwear. And she asked him what I would consider aggressively what happened. And Ian burst into tears and she was able to surmise what had taken place. And she called the police on her own son. And I really commend Ian's mother because a lot of mothers, when they hear that, they will disbelieve it. Or alternatively, they will simply do nothing. 
they will brush it under the carpet because it brings shame upon the family. But in this instance, that's not what took place. Ian's mother stood with him. The great thing is that Ian forgave his brother. As I heard recently at church, forgiveness or the lack of forgiveness is like eating poison, expecting the other person to die. Forgiveness doesn't require reconciliation. Forgiveness is for you and not for the other person. But far too often, we have this mistaken belief or assumption that forgiveness requires us to be in relationship with someone. If that person is harmful towards us, that is a lack of wisdom. And as the pastor often says, forgiveness doesn't mean that you do not follow the law, that you do not put measures in place to protect yourself. Ian was young, Ian was vulnerable, and he was taken advantage of. When he was 13, he was with some friends and they were getting up to no good as usual, robbing people, playing with guns, etc. And on this occasion, they see a white woman and a man. Her name is Debbie. Debbie was actually out with a friend, I believe, and she had left wherever she was and someone she knew had offered to walk her home and said it's not safe. So she wasn't actually spending time with this guy. She was with someone else by herself. But this guy happened upon her and said, let me walk you to your car. It's not safe. And so he does that. Ian and his friends decide to go up to them and ask for money. And then when that happens, to rob them or to ask for change. So Ian and his friends go over and ask for change. And then the lady, I think she reacts or, or something happens that startles Ian. And the gun goes off in his hand. So Debbie runs away, bleeding profusely the guy stayed he stays there on his knees neither of them died from any injuries that were sustained but debbie had a bullet wound to the mouth she lost most of her teeth and had to go through constructive surgery for years ian wasn't found immediately in the sense of the crime wasn't solved instantly but it eventually was and he went to prison but when he went to prison he was charged as an adult rather than as a minor and he was incarcerated and given pretty much a sentence of death. Not the death penalty, but death in prison. When I read the book, what I found interesting was how there was a lot of back and forth, back and forth. When Ian eventually got a lawyer who would stand with him, he would go to court. And he'd be resentenced and go to court and be resentenced. And at one time, he was sentenced to an additional 63 years or 65 years. And that duration, length of time was excessive for the particular sentencing guidelines. It was more than what he could receive. Every time he went back, he was hoping that there would be a change. He was hoping that maybe he'd get less time or be released. And initially, when he was first taken to jail, he was given a life sentence in prison and then life probation. So that meant that it was life. Life in prison and then life probation. So he would never be able to have freedom. Of course, that's not how the story ends, because Brian Stevenson from Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama, his law, his organization, it's not a law firm, it's a nonprofit. They take on this case. And after a number of years of fighting persistently, Ian was released five years ago. The thing is, though, when you read this book, you don't realize the length of time that has taken place. Ian developed the skill of poetry and so whilst he was in prison he would write poems he does spoken word he's a very gifted person I've had the opportunity to view an interview with him and Debbie online 
he is very articulate, well-spoken, and he comes across as a very educated person. Because education doesn't just happen in the classroom. We can be educated by life. There are a lot of people who have common sense, and they didn't learn their common sense in school. Then there are those of us who are educated, but lack the common sense. Ian had a very difficult experience. The solitary confinement messed with him mentally, physically. He was brutalized, gassed. He was falsely accused. He was pretty much tortured. He went through cruel and inhumane treatment at the hands of the prison guards. There was a lot of confusion and lies. And then the prison guards would say something that's not true. And as a result of their lies, he would end up being put back into solitary confinement or CM. So there was a lot of confusion. And what's so difficult is that there's nobody who can advocate for you. When the prison guards are against you, what can you do? Nothing. You're stuck. You are limited because you're in a place where the people who are there to protect you or to help you or to safeguard you, so to speak, are the same ones that are perpetrating intense and immense violence upon you for no good reason. He says in his book that at no point did he cry, and I understand that, because that would be a sign of vulnerability. And so despite what he went through, he had to keep his head up and he had to stay as strong as possible and internalize all those feelings. However, there were times when it became too much and he did not try to commit suicide, but he would cut himself because by doing so, it gave him that physical escape, of course, but more than that, it would enable him to leave to literally leave the confines of solitary so that they can take him to the nurse, etc. And so he would frequently slice his wrists, his, his arms, elbow joints. And then he had an accident as a child and there was a cut above his eye. And so he would reopen that. I wouldn't call it a cry for help. It was a cry for freedom, a cry for release. I think none of us can truly understand what it would be like to spend approximately 18 years in solitary confinement. I think we cannot wrap our heads around that. We may have felt like we were in solitary during the lockdown for the last 18 months or so. But the reality is that we had the freedom to go grocery shopping, the freedom to take a walk at the park, the freedom to go to the doctors, the freedom to leave for set reasons. We were not, in the US and UK at least, restricted where we could not come out of our house. Whereas in some countries, there was curfew. In some countries, from what it appeared on the news, they could not leave under any circumstances. However, they still had the internet. They had access to neighbors if they were living in an apartment complex. They had access to the phone, fridge, freezer, all these basic things that are stripped away from you when you end up in incarceration. So after reading his book two Sundays ago, I was so inspired by it that I decided that I wanted to give back. Now, as I'm still a volunteer, I was thinking, well, how can I give back when I don't have an income? And then I came to the decision that since I have my book, Can You Keep a Secret? What I can do is donate some of the profits from the sales. So I'm already giving 70%, seven zero. But I said, well, I can give 80. So now I'm giving 80% of profits from the sale of the books so that I can provide funding or finances to those who are incarcerated for their canteen allowance. Because in the book, Ian talks about having a canteen allowance, getting stamps, pens, paper, so he can write letters. He actually built a relationship with Debbie whilst he was in prison. He called her collect the first time, very nervous. He spoke to her and said, can I talk to you again? 
and they built up a relationship to the point where Debbie forgave him. She wanted him to be given a second chance. And having watched this video, this short video on Facebook, I can't say if she's a Christian or not, but I saw a clip of her praying at a program, like a soup kitchen or a pantry event. Irrespective of whether she is a person of faith or not, she demonstrated the power of forgiveness at a time when there was a lot of discrimination between blacks and whites. And in a place like Florida, the South, where the penalties are very heavily severe when it is a person of color, not taking into account the person's age or whether they have any mental disabilities or whether there are any extenuating circumstances that have led them to cause the crime. And so for me, when I read that, I was amazed. It does not say if she's Christian, but I was thinking, wow, because you don't typically hear about a victim, survivor, forgiving their perpetrator, coming to court and advocating on behalf of that person so that they can be released, so they can get less time, a shorter sentence. Debbie said that Ian deserves to be punished, but of course the punishment does not have to be his entire life because he was a child and as he grows up, he'll have the opportunity to develop, to mature. And so the mistakes that he may have made then, as an adult, he would probably most likely not make those mistakes. Like in the Bible, it says, when I was a child, I would think as a child. And so it's the same thing. Giving that life sentence to him for a non-homicidal offense is very severe because it doesn't take into account the fact that he was 13, he was a child, he was immature. He doesn't know really right from wrong. Yes, you know what he's doing was wrong, but in the sense of there's still a lot of development that has to take place. And that's one of the realities that the development of a person, a child specifically, who is in solitary confinement, that adversely affects them. But by the grace of God, that is not evident in Ian himself. There are other inmates who will be incarcerated in solitary and take their own life, turn to drugs. At the end of the day, there's only so much each person can bear. And as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13b, God only gives you what you can bear so you can handle it. The point is, each person has a cross to bear. It says it in the Bible. Every one of us are going to go through challenges, hardships, difficulties. What one person goes through may seem intense and extreme because that's not your cross to bear. That is not your journey. That is not your calling. That is not your ministry. And so when people take their lives, I believe it's because they feel that this is all they can handle. They cannot withstand the trials. They just want it to end. They were overwhelmed. There are so many different reasons. And I myself have often contemplated the Lord taking me home because the situation has become so overbearing. It's like the final straw, like I'm on the cliff edge, I've been pushed off. But of course, I understand, and I've always known as a Christian, that I am on the edge, but I'm not going to fall off. I'm on the edge, but I'm not going to fall off this trial. It's not so much that I'm going to fall off the edge. I can deal with it. I can withstand it. I can get through it. I can overcome it. And so I actually had the opportunity and the privilege of meeting Ian three days after reading his book that same Wednesday. And it was an honor and a privilege. It was very eye-opening to be able to hear his story personally. I pretty much remembered verbatim everything I read in the book, which he was impressed about. But that's because the book was so well written. I was moved by it. I could empathize. I could understand. I could relate. And for me, I was like, wow, this is an amazing story because it speaks so vividly of what he went through that even though you were not there when he was being gassed or when he was being lied upon by the, by the staff, when he was being beaten, you may not be physically there, but the way it was written, you felt like you were. 
Now, I asked him if he had a ghostwriter, and he said that he had, which is what I assumed. And he told me about how long it had taken and all the logistics. And I was very grateful for that. It was very eye-opening to be able to get a real bird's-eye view of the procedures that were in place for him to be able to become published in May of this year. In addition, he shared with me about how it even came about and the fact that he was simply doing his job. And there's often a saying that we use amongst Christians that when you're taking care of your business, God will take care of it too. In the sense of keep yourself occupied in things of God. Keep your focus on him. And whatever you're seeking, whilst you're busy doing your business, which is God's business, he will bring whatever it is you're looking for, whether that's a relationship, whether that's a promotion. Keep your eyes fixed on the right thing, not on that desire, because then it becomes your idol. But keep yourself engrossed in your ministry, in your calling, in doing what you're supposed to do, in doing your work. And that's what it was with Ian. He was at a college or university in New York giving a presentation. In other words, he was doing his work. And whilst there, a Jewish lady came over to him and she was tearful and said that you need to share your story. Her brother and sister-in-law are actually publishers, so she connected them to Ian. They helped Ian with a ghostwriter, with a proposal, and they took his book to Random House, who offered him a certain amount. There were two other publishers that offered other amounts, but they were so much smaller. So he went with Random House. This lady also has connections in Hollywood. She's connected to Obama and to George Bush. And Ian's book will become a movie in three years. So when I heard that, I was amazed. Like, wow. Although he's no longer a Christian, he's no longer practicing his faith, he shared with me that he's read the Bible multiple times. And he spoke about, when I was a child, I thought as a child. That scripture means so much to him because what he did at 13 was a childish behavior. It was wrong, illegal, immoral, criminal. But he was a child. He's matured now. And when we were together, I asked him a lot of questions. He said that he's not ready to do any interviews at this time. And he's even turned down major interviews for international broadcasting houses. But when I asked him some questions, he was very transparent in expressing to me what it was like after, what it was like during the situation, what happens next. And what I think a lot of us don't realize is what was taken from that individual. We're so fixed and focused on the victim survivor that we forget about what was taken from the perpetrator who was penalized and punished as they should be. But when they return to society, it is hard for them to function. Even five years after being released from prison, he cannot drive. He spoke about the struggles in the prison, particularly the fact that these men have been there through childhood and puberty. And often as a result of that, they are addicted to masturbation or they turn to homosexuality. He said he did not turn to homosexuality, but he was addicted to masturbation. And the reality is that these men who are in prison from childhood onwards, who will be released at 39 like him or 45 or 50, many of them are virgins. And so when they come out, they will engage in sexual activity with multiple women, including prostitutes, I'm sure, because they feel they have been starved of sex. Sex becomes the idol. And he told me about how there were women who would work in the prison and that the men did not have access to porn, but they had access to female staff. So they would masturbate and look at these women. So that became their pornography. And some of the women would get them into trouble. Others of them wouldn't. 
that that was the life of these men in the prison. He said that he spoke to those who were gay and from his experience, having interacted with inmates who were gay, he said that they all, or at least 90% of them, 99% of them had been sexually abused at some point in their childhood. Because he was trying to understand what led them to have such a lifestyle. And then at the same time, he was sexually abused by his brother who did not have the homosexual desires or tendencies as the other inmates did. So he was trying to understand that. How, now that he's out, he had to learn everything again. In other words, things that he may have forgotten, he would have to retrain himself. He said one of the hardest things when leaving was crossing the road. He was overwhelmed. And he even told me that, yes, at times he misses being in prison. He actually commended me and said that he... <laughs> He's never had anyone ask him the questions I asked, but that's because I'm thinking outside of the box. A lot of people don't do that, so they would never think to ask an inmate if they miss prison. But for me, that's a reasonable question because that's been your life. He was in there from 13 to 39, so the majority of his life was spent there. I asked him, and I said, I hope you'll be offended, but I asked him, if you were not in prison, do you think you'd be alive today? And he told me, no, he wouldn't be. And I said, I completely concur with that. Because, in fact, his brother died. His brother, I believe, had... His mother had HIV AIDS. His father died. His father was absent, but would sometimes reach out to him and send him some money. His brother died, I believe, maybe in a hospital. Cousins died. Some of his family members were involved in criminal activity. They died very young. A lot of the guys who grew up with died very young. Some of the guys who grew up with are still in prison. Ian was given a second chance, and I believe that is because of Debbie's ability to forgive. Also, Ian's willingness to be humble, willingness to repent. Brian Stevenson was his lawyer who advocated for him, stood by him, supported him. Many individuals on death row who are in solitary do not have lawyers who are standing with them. That doesn't mean to say they have an effective assistance of counsel. It may simply be that the lawyer is just doing his job. The lawyer isn't truly passionate about this. Or the lawyer is a pro bono lawyer. So it comes down to they simply do not have the capacity to give 110%. But from what I've seen from reading Brian Stevenson's book, Just, Mer just Mercy, and having spoken to Ian himself, Brian goes the extra mile. In fact, the chapter I'm currently in in Brian Stevenson's book, he talks about when it comes to death row and when it's approaching time for execution, they work 18-hour shifts. From what I've observed, I believe that he's unmarried and doesn't have children. He certainly doesn't have a wedding ring. And when you're doing 18-hour shifts, it makes sense. I believe the calling on Brian Stevenson's life is to fight for these individuals. And just like him, there are so many other lawyers in the U.S. and outside who are fighting for the rights, who are fighting for justice. It's not that we're saying that these people should not be penalized, should not experience time away from the freedom of society, the ability to do as one chooses, to have the pleasures of, of life in the world. Even Debbie herself said the very same thing, that Ian deserves to be punished for his crime. However, it's about thinking proportionally. It shouldn't be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which is sometimes what we may believe, which we may anticipate and expect is just and right. 
because it's not going to turn the clock back. From looking at the interview with Ian and Debbie, I cannot see any evidence of her being shot in the mouth. She has teeth. I didn't see any scarring. It could be makeup. But the point is, yes, something was stolen from her, but she's able to function from what I could see. She's able to go on with her life. Ian took a lot away from her, but he has also given so much. And they have a really close relationship. And that is really beautiful because it makes me think about the scripture. The enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. In the sense of Ian would never have had an intimate relationship with a white woman in Florida if he hadn't shot her in the mouth. Now, I'm not saying she'll go around shooting people in the mouth to build a relationship. I'm just saying it how the person Debbie was and the person Ian became, they were able to have a on and off written platonic relationship for extended duration of time. And that is pretty amazing. And for me, I'm just like, wow, isn't God awesome that he can bring two people from very different walks of life through very negative circumstances, but actually turn things around where the end result is positive. And I believe that their story is so unique. That is why a movie will be coming out in three years. That is why his book will surely win awards because of the uniqueness of it. He wrote an article for the New York Times, Ian Manuel, and the editor was so impressed by it, they wanted another article. And Ian said, I will work on that. Maybe not anytime soon, but I'll work on that. The Bible says we should not be a lamp under a bushel. We should be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We need to use our words to speak up. We can empower people through our testimony. It says we've overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. It doesn't matter who you are. Every one of us has had difficult times. Every one of us has also had times of rejoicing and celebration. And so therefore, it's about focusing on the positives, not becoming bogged down by what didn't happen and, and how things should have been different and about what was stolen or taken away. Because in life, things will be taken from us, but instead it's about turning our eyes and fixing it on the good that comes out of it, about the way that you can have an impact in the life of someone going through the same thing, about how you can advise and guide somebody so that they do not end up taking or making those choices, taking wrong paths, making destructive choices that become harmful to themselves or to others. Thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Keep a Secret? I trust that the information has been useful to you. I believe that we all need knowledge and education, and when we have a better understanding of topics such as abuse, it enables us to better safeguard the children in our world. For a better understanding of the topics being covered each week, then please reach out to me for a copy of my new book, Can You Keep a Secret? You can follow me, message or email me, so that I can answer your questions in upcoming episodes. We can all learn from one another, and this is an educational series that I hope will impact and change not just your life, but also that of the people around you. You can find all my contact details on my website, changingcases.org. That's changingcases.org. Remember to share this podcast with friends and family members. There are victims and survivors in your world, you just don't know it. But if we can all be educated, then the world will be a safer place. Please tune in next week for another episode. Because I want to talk about it. Can you keep us